Okay, you can start wrapping up your conversations. Grab a seat. We've uh, reached that point in the service where we're going to open up the word together. I noticed some of you didn't, uh, didn't try to meet anyone or say hello. Some of you are still bagged from last night. <laughs> we'll get you some sleep afterwards. Well, we have a chance now to open up the Word together. Um, my name is Tar George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. And if this is your first time, if you're visiting, welcome. Uh, we are in a sermon series on 2 Corinthians looking at what the gospel means in everyday life. And here to read from us is Sharon. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 8. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you. I will not be ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sharon. Well, it's about this time every year when my family and I sit down to watch The Lord of the Rings. It is a captivating series with incredible visuals and beautiful storytelling. And one of the things we've come to appreciate most about the movies are the incredible battle scenes that happen between good and evil, particularly in the second movie. Because smack, I think, in the middle of this entire trilogy is this one crucial scene that I think defines the series as a whole. It is a scene where the audience is brought into the throne room of King Theoden, leader of Rohan. He's a king whose kingdom is quickly shrinking. He sees the forces of evil spreading across his lands unchecked but he feels powerless to stop them. And into the scene, his allies come to him with counsel, encouraging to fight and go to war, but he is hesitant. He believes that to engage the enemy in battle would only bring his people further destruction. You see, this is not a war that he wants to fight. In fact, he would rather avoid it entirely. He says to his allies, I know what it is you want from me, but I will not risk open war. There's an uncomfortable silence in the hall as everyone weighs his words carefully. And it is then that Aragorn, one of his allies, replies emphatically, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. You see, it's a powerful scene where the audience, I think, understands that war is imminent for these characters. This is not an enemy who can be pacified or reasoned with. This is an enemy who has come only to kill, destroy, and burn. This is an enemy who must be fought. And if you listen carefully throughout the series, you'll find that the entire trilogy actually illustrates this one point, that it doesn't matter who you are and whether you want to fight. The fight has simply come to you. So now what will you do? 
Will you answer the call and go to war? Will you rally together and take up the fight? You know, curiously, I think this is the same question that we find the Apostle Paul asking us this very morning. Because in our passage today, Paul identifies that there is a battle raging on right now. It is not fought with swords, bombs, or guns, but it is maybe the most important battle that you and I will ever engage with. It is a spiritual battle of the soul, and it is fought, Paul says, against a spiritual enemy. And the question Paul raises for us this morning is this, will we answer the call and go to war? And so Paul here invites us to reflect on the spiritual battle. He asks us to do two things this morning. First, to see the battle, and second, to join the battle. See the battle and join the battle. Well, you're looking at Paul's first point. Well, you know, the context of this passage is actually pretty important. If you're just joining us, Paul has spent a lot of time trying to reconcile with the Corinthians and make peace with them. He's been reassuring them of his love, working through their concerns, and correcting false ideas that they have about him and his gospel. And if you've been reading the letter, you'll find that the Corinthians often have some pretty bold and audacious things to say about Paul. And he's frequently responding to their accusations chapter over chapter. In fact, commentators have noted about these letters that it feels almost like a war is being fought through words. There's something about the way Paul embodies his gospel that profoundly bothers them. It's created this strange level of animosity between them. And I think what Paul wants to show us is this, that the resistance they feel towards him and his gospel is actually a resistance that they have towards the person and kingdom of Jesus. Because this is what Paul's apostleship ultimately represents. He's saying, I'm not the enemy here. We're on the same side. Let me show you that your fight isn't actually with me. And so he begins first by urging them to reconcile. He says in verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreat you. This word entreat comes from the Greek word parakalio, which literally means call to be near or beside. Paul is saying, I see that you're standing against me, but I want you to stand beside me for the good of the gospel and the common service of Jesus Christ. You and I are not at odds with each other. We serve the same Lord. He has rescued us the same way through the gospel. In fact, he says in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself also that just as he is Christ, so also are we. He's saying, your fight is not with me. We're on the same side. The gospel has united us together under Jesus Christ. You know this. But, but, it has also united us against a common enemy. One who you must now continue to fight. And it's here that Paul begins to tell us about the battle that faces every person. He orients his readers to see that there's a spiritual war that is currently taking place. And you can see that in verse 5. You see, underneath the surface of what you and I can see, hear, and touch is this invisible spiritual battle that Paul says is raging all around us. It doesn't receive media attention like Ukraine, Afghanistan, or Ethiopia, but it is no less real. In fact, it is a war with much higher stakes. It is not a war being fought for land, oil, or power, but for the souls of every person who has ever lived. And like it or not, Paul says that there's no neutral ground in this conflict. 
You and I are not just spectators in this war. We are an embattled people who have knowingly or unknowingly allied ourselves with one side or the other. This is what Paul is saying. In other words, in the biblical worldview, there are only two sides to stand on. You are either with Christ and for him, or you are against Christ and opposed to him. And the gospel calls every person to make a decision and choose wisely. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would imagine this idea might bother you. This concept feels far too black and white. Maybe you're thinking, how is it that you can claim that the Christian is for God and everyone else is unequivocally against him? Isn't that just arrogant? What about those who are genuinely unconvinced, agnostic, ignorant of this God, or even of a different faith? That's a great question. And to that, I want to say two things. First, you should know that the Bible teaches that everyone, everyone stands in opposition to God. That Christians claim to be right on this issue isn't some kind of bragging right or badge of honor. No, not at all. The true believer, I think, understands him or herself to be someone who is at one point completely in opposition to God, just like everybody else. In fact, we believe that if we have come to trust in Jesus at all, it is purely because of God's mercy. We have nothing to boast about which is precisely what Paul has been articulating to the Corinthians in his letters so far. But second and most importantly, you should know that the God of this text is not waging a war against unbelievers. Rather, he is waging a war for unbelievers. Paul says in verse 4 that there are these strongholds that exist in the culture, worldly ways of thinking that trap people's minds in unbelief. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul argues that there are two kinds of thinking that exist presently, a worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom. He says there is a worldly way of thinking that proudly sets itself against God, and there is also a spiritual way of thinking that humbly receives him. And Paul's point is this, the wisdom of the world, all its arguments, philosophies, and opinions do not and cannot lead a person to see their true need for God. Why? Because they proceed from a mind that is ultimately estranged from God and radically opposed to him. That's what Paul is saying. And look, this isn't a bash secular thinking. Not at all. Certainly there are a great many things that our world has benefited from due to the ingenuity, reasoning, and opinions of people who don't believe in Jesus. We are blessed, I think, as a culture to have good secular thinkers and scholars in our society. And Paul doesn't mean to cheapen that. No. However, there's a certain kind of knowledge that Paul says cannot be derived in this way. It is expressly, verse 5, in the area of knowledge about God where the world can only fumble. You see, the problem of sin is that the human mind wants most naturally to be independent from God, from the true God, that is the God of the Bible. And to achieve this independence, the Bible says that we tend to suppress the knowledge of God in one of three ways. We either deny this God and the knowledge of him and his very existence altogether, or we willfully reject this God and choose to go our own way, or we pledge ourselves to other gods of our own making, deities and idols who aren't real but who would permit us to live and behave in all the ways that we actually want to. See, whatever way you look at it, Paul is saying that the human mind left to itself has a natural disposition to suppress the knowledge of the true God. And here's why. 
Because at the heart of things, the unconverted person has a mind that is held captive by a spiritual enemy. And that is Satan. And Satan's purpose, men and women, is to suppress the knowledge of God in the culture and in your heart. Paul writes earlier in chapter 2 that Satan's aim is to outwit, outthink, and exploit the mind of the believer. And he even writes in chapter 4 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Do you understand? This is the spiritual war that Paul wants you to see. The kind of battle that Satan is fighting in an assault on people's minds and their thinking. His purpose is to keep people trapped in unbelief and enmity with God because he himself is an enemy of God. Well, how does he do that? Well, Paul says here in our passage that the enemy has these spiritual strongholds in the world. Uh, the word here, the Greek uh, for stronghold, roughly translates to this, this heavily defended fortress. And Paul explains in verse 5 what he means by this. He claims that there are these spiritual strongholds, represent arguments, lofty opinions, and, and philosophies that challenge and oppose the truth of the gospel. And he argues that the enemy has erected these strongholds everywhere in the culture. His work is actually pretty pervasive. It's true, I think, that you don't have to look too far in our city to see that people's views are generally at odds with the gospel. Most people in Toronto regard Christianity as being too exclusive or too intolerant, regressive, unsophisticated, erroneous, or just plain imaginary. And listen, it's the same all over the globe. Anywhere where there is secular or religious opposition to the gospel, Satan has done his work. These strongholds may look a little different from place to place, but they all exist to deny, limit, or extinguish the knowledge of the gospel in the world. They are designed to keep people shackled in unbelief. And according to Paul, this, this precisely is why God is going to war. 1 John 3.18 reiterates that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. God's purpose in waging this spiritual war is to destroy these strongholds, these ways of thinking that hold sway over people's lives and trap them in unbelief. And incidentally, this is why Paul can't simply just give up on the Corinthians. No, even after all the trouble and heartache that they've caused him. You see, they're thinking and everything they know about the gospel is coming under attack, and Paul won't stand for it. You see, Paul understands, I think, that his ministry is to be an extension of God's war effort to save these people. He has planted the church, prayed for it, supported it, and now he wants the gospel to flourish in their midst. He wants, I think, both them and us to see it, the war that has already been fought so that we might believe. He's saying that if you have believed in Jesus, it is because God has personally gone to war with the devil on your behalf and he has plucked you from behind enemy lines. Do you understand? The gospel has overcome your unbelief. It has destroyed these very strongholds in your life and has joined you to the person of Jesus. That's why you believe. You have been given this ability to see and believe. And Paul says, open your eyes to see this spiritual battle. This is Paul's first point. Now secondly, however, Paul also encourages readers here to join the battle. You see, it's not enough to simply see the war. 
You have to understand that the gospel has not only saved you, but it has also enlisted you into God's redemptive purposes. And as we'll see for Paul, this has implications for how this war continues to be fought now through you. You. In light of the spiritual war that is raging around you, your salvation means that you are now fighting a battle on two fronts. First, in your heart, and second, in the culture you inhabit. We'll look at each of these in turn. Now, as we've been seeing, Paul has been trying to persuade the Corinthians to reconcile with him. And as we've been learning over the last several weeks, this church is being influenced by these false apostles who have arrived in Corinth and are teaching a distorted gospel. And because their message is so at odds with what Paul has been saying, these false teachers have been trying to undermine Paul's authority and leadership. They're saying, you don't need this guy, Paul. His ministry, well, it's actually a bit of a sham. Listen to us. We'll tell you what the gospel really means. And what they do is to begin to sow unrest and unbelief within the church through their false ideas, false ideas that ultimately influence the Corinthians and begin to lead them astray from this true knowledge of God. That's what this is about. You see, the work, the work that the gospel has accomplished in their hearts is slowly coming undone. And they begin confronting Paul about what they're hearing from these teachers. You can see that in our passage. Verse 10, they claim that Paul is quite bold and authoritative in his letters from afar, but kind of weak when he's face to face. They're saying, you talk a big game and act all leader-like from a distance, but when you're here with us, you're kind of unimpressive, actually. They're saying also that he's walking according to the flesh, that somehow, somehow the way he conducts himself in ministry is unspiritual. They're asking, can we really trust the gospel he's preaching? What these other teachers are saying sounds a lot more appealing. You see what's happening. The enemy has been busy, and the church is coming under spiritual attack. The very strongholds that Paul helped destroy are now once again being erected in their hearts, and they are at risk of turning away from the gospel. You see, although they accepted Jesus and said they believed in him, they have little by little allowed tiny bits of worldly ideas and opinions to influence their view of the gospel. In fact, the fact that they were so easily seduced by the ideas, opinions, and arguments of these false teachers proves that the battle is not quite done with them yet. They still have a ways to go. You see, Paul wants the Corinthians to consider these false influences and continue the fight in their hearts. And he think, I think, he wants each of us to do the same. Christian, if you have accepted Jesus, that means that he has won the war for your heart. You belong to him. Praise God. But recognize that there will always, always be skirmishes this side of heaven. Satan will continue his assault against you and you will need to continuously put down the resistance. You will be bombarded by worldly truth and antichrist ideas that will threaten the gospel's work in your heart. Men and women, we must be on guard. Paul says that you and I have a responsibility to take every thought captive to obey Christ. It means that we ought to sift everything we are hearing in the culture through a distinct gospel lens. It requires us to ask, is there anything about this cultural idea, movement, or practice that the gospel might actually affirm? And at the same time, is there anything about it that the gospel might actually challenge? We ought to think wisely about the ideas of the culture. 
And I think it means also that you have to be discriminating about the kinds of influences you allow to take root in your life. Whether that's people, ideas, TV, music, or whatever else. Paul is saying, let nothing interfere with your obedience to Jesus. Grace Toronto, I think this passage also has implications for us as the church. I think Paul calls us to take very seriously the battle that is being waged around us. I need to tell you that Corinth was a city not too different from today's Toronto, actually. The city of Corinth was one of the largest and most important cities in the ancient world. It was well known for its booming trade, commerce, wealth, and prestige. It had the foremost thinkers, scholars, leaders, and entrepreneurs. It was known for its diversity, consumerism, idol worship, and promiscuity. In short, it was a city just like ours, with enormous strongholds. And when we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we learn that this church frequently wrestled with the influence of the culture. They were often tempted to compromise on their belief or to entertain controversial ideas in the name of tolerance and inclusion. I wonder, does any of that surprise you? It shouldn't. This word, I tell you, is just as relevant today as it was when Paul first wrote it. You see, God's people are all engaged in the same fight. The culture still confronts us on our views of God, scripture, marriage, sexuality, and even life in the womb. Toronto is a hard place to be a Christian because, precisely, because important cultural battles are being fought here. And we need to be on guard. Grace Toronto, we are living at a time when the city still grants us quite a few religious freedoms and exceptions. This is not the case everywhere in the world. We need to tell you that. We may sooner or later find that the fight will come to us. And I think Paul would ask us to be vigilant. He's saying, Christ has claimed the territory of your heart and you are now tasked with defending it. Do that. Take courage also though, because you are not doing this alone. Paul promises that we have God's divine power at work in us and in the world. God is helping us fight. Jesus promises his word and spirit as weapons of war to help us. And Paul says that Christ has also given us such things like prayer, preaching, fellowship, communion, and even church discipline here to help us fight well. He's saying we are not to fight in our own strength according to the flesh, but through God's strength. And we are to use these weapons. We are to use them and allow the gospel to build new strongholds in our hearts that we may remain faithful and obedient to Jesus. This is what Paul is encouraging the Christian to do in his or her own heart. And in addition, however, Paul also calls us to fight the battle on a second front, that is, in the culture. And this is, I think, I think really important for how we understand this text. Because were we simply fighting for ourselves alone, we could just barricade ourselves in a remote place and surround ourselves with believers who hold all the same convictions that we do. Wouldn't that be lovely? In fact, I think many Christians reading this passage have come to that very conclusion. I know of believers who have packed up and left the city because they wanted to guard themselves and their children from the secular and sinful influences that exist here. Let me say, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. This is not a defensive war that we are fighting. We are on the offense. Paul doesn't envision you holed up in a fortress warding off the enemy. No, 
Paul envisions us destroying strongholds. It's this picture of us leaving our places of safety, marching to the enemy's doorstep, and laying siege to his castle. This is an offensive war, which means this. We are not retreating or hiding from the culture. We are moving toward it with purpose. We are not just protecting ground. We are pressing the attack and taking ground. That's what Paul is saying. Do you understand? This is what the believer is meant to do. Being joined to Jesus Christ means that we now have a share in his ministry. Like Paul, we are part of Christ's war effort to save and free people from their unbelief. Paul reminds us that there are these strongholds that exist in the culture that the gospel aims to destroy. The, the imagery here is of a fortress being breached and those sheltering behind its walls are taken captive. What is he saying? Well, I think he's reminding us that there are well-intentioned people in our city who are taking shelter in these anti-gospel ideas, thinking that these will save and protect them. But they won't. They won't. You see, if the gospel actually represents knowledge of God and all truth, then anything in opposition to it must therefore be a lie. It won't serve you. It won't. I think Paul is saying that like a fortress, these worldly ideas have the outward appearance of strength and security, and they draw people to them because they seem surely good, reliable, and reasonable. But in the end, they're a false hope. They are just waiting to crumble. They will ultimately be destroyed, and when they are, they will crush any who take shelter within them. Listen, I think this is why Paul takes this ministry, his ministry, so very seriously. There are competing ideas in the culture that set themselves against the knowledge of God, and these, these are destroying people. Paul doesn't want to destroy people. Rather, he wants to destroy people's thinking to save them. In fact, Paul reiterates in verse 8 that the Lord has commissioned him to build people up, not to destroy them. But he wants to build people up on the right foundation because their current stronghold is precarious at best. It will ultimately destroy them in the end. And here's why. You see, the heart of the gospel is that you and I need this God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and the way we speak, act, and think have estranged us from God and made us his enemies. And if we continue in this willful opposition to him and remain his enemies, the Bible says that we will most certainly die in our sins. This is what it's at cost. We need, I think, most desperately to have the knowledge of God in our lives. Because unless we turn to God and are reconciled to him, our unbelief will become our undoing. That's what this is saying. This is the point that Paul wants to make. He says in verse five, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Christian, you and I are called to participate in God's deconstruction of people's thinking and show them their need for God. And listen, if you're here exploring the Christian faith, I know very well what this might sound like to you. I want to say that there are times in the history of the church when we haven't practiced this well. There have been times that the church in its blind zeal for God acted foolishly and recklessly with disastrous consequences. 
when we weaponize Paul's words here as justification to do all kinds of things to convert people and stamp out competing ideas. I think history bears witness to the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and most recently the Canadian residential schools as just a few examples of our failure in this regard. And we lament that. We do. I want to say that that was wicked and wrong. In fact, I know that there are many of you, many of you have difficulty trusting the gospel in the church because of atrocities like that. I want you to hear very clearly that that is not at all what Paul has in mind here. This is a spiritual war fought with spiritual weapons of grace. There is no room for fear, coercion, or violence. This is a battle fought for people, not against people. It is so important, I think, that you see that. Which is why I think Paul is careful to tell us explicitly how this war is fought. He says in verse 1, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christian, as you listen to people's arguments, opinions, and thoughts against the gospel, you are not to be domineering, insolent, or disrespectful. You are to embody Jesus Christ. And as you entreat people with the gospel, you are to be meek and gentle, just as your Lord and Savior. Paul is saying that you are to fight this battle in the same spirit because Christ Jesus fought this way for you. Because here's the good news of the gospel, my friends. You and I were on the wrong side of this spiritual war. Because of our sin, we were enemies of God and justly deserving his punishment. But instead of destroying us in his holy war, God sent Jesus, his son, to actually come and make peace. He came as humanity's ally, but we treated him like the enemy. He came to build us up, but we in our sinful minds sought to destroy him. Although he was innocent, he endured every accusation, argument, and lofty opinion raised against him because he had determined to save us from our sins. And after he was humiliated, tortured, and bloodied beyond recognition, God's people chose a weapon for his execution. It was none other than the cross. And yet he took this instrument of incredible torture and made it for you and I an instrument of incredible grace. Because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself all our sin, all our rebellion, all our unbelief, and he carried these with meekness and gentleness. And in exchange, he gave us the knowledge of God, righteousness, and the peace with him that we so desperately needed. You see, by God's deliberate plan, the very weapon that put him to death became the weapon that set us free from Satan's stronghold. And it's with this in mind, I think, that the apostle teaches and encourages us. May this be true. May it be that we answer the call and join this fight. Well, some application. What is Paul here saying for us to do? How is he calling us to respond? I think this passage calls us to see the spiritual war that is before us and to join in the fight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to consider there's a spiritual reality that goes deeper than what you can presently see and touch. I think God wants to overcome your unbelief, I do, and give you this knowledge of himself that Paul has been describing. In a room this side, I think it's quite possible 
You may be sitting here with a number of really thoughtful arguments, opinions, and ideas that are keeping you from committing your life to Jesus. We'd love to listen and to hear about them with meekness and gentleness, as Paul says. It would be our privilege, I think, to help you resolve your doubts and questions, if we can. For the Christian here, well, consider yourself enlisted into the army of Jesus Christ, because that is what you are. As we've been discussing, the gospel has called you to take up the fight. We've been talking a lot about what that means already, but I want to highlight just three principles from the text to guide you in how to do this well. First, rely on God's power. It would be quite impossible, I think, for you to carry out this battle in your own strength. You need God's Spirit to help you fight and resist the devil, so ask Him for what you need daily. Pray against temptation, unbelief, and apathy in your own heart. Ask God to give you courage to move towards people with the gospel. And pray also for opportunities to engage them. I think that's important. Second, educate yourself. Learn about the issues that people have with the gospel. What are their hang-ups, their questions, their barriers to the faith? Taking people's thoughts captive to Christ requires, I think, that we first know what our culture is thinking and saying about Jesus and his word. Learn that. Seek out answers to people's most pressing life questions. Consider how you might answer their skepticism. And as you do that, I think it's important that you sharpen your ability to communicate the gospel persuasively. Learn to share it plainly, that is, in everyday speech, but also contextually, that is, with a view to people's needs and concerns, specifically. And third and finally, lean on the army. Lean on the army. You are not a lone soldier. Paul says that we are waging war. We destroy arguments. We take every thought captive. I need to tell you that the most pressing spiritual battles are seldom won alone, without any help, in private or with secrecy. Whatever doubts or struggles you have, I would encourage you to bring other brothers and sisters whom you trust into your fight. Let them accompany you. Let them serve you as you seek to obey Christ, and you be diligent to serve them also. My friends, Paul is here, called us this morning to see the battle and join the battle. Would you do that? Know that Christ has gone before you to fight and he has secured a victory that no one, no one, not even the depths of hell will take away. By God's grace, you are no longer a prisoner of the enemy, but you are a soldier of the king. So now you gird yourself for battle. Obey the spirit and go follow your Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this spiritual war that you are waging against unbelief. For those of us who are Christian, we thank you that you have destroyed our strongholds and you have allowed us to know you, this knowledge of God. And for those of us who are still exploring, who still have opinions, arguments, I pray that you clear that up, that you would destroy that also. Would you use us as a church to minister uh, to the world that many people would know you and come to put their faith and trust in you. Inspire our obedience. Help us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's, this time in the service, we have uh, some time for Q&A, and Kingsley's going to be helping us out with that.
Okay, and for Q&A, what we'll do is we'll be only answering questions that are directly related to this text or its applications. And so if there are questions that are outside the scope, uh, I'll give the phone over to Tarek and he can message you privately afterwards. Um, also, we have a lot of questions about applications. So I'm going to try to lump some of these questions together and group them together so that way you can answer them as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. The first question writes, I know the ultimate victory is sealed in Christ. Why do I feel like I am losing my spiritual battle even though the war is won? Just like Gondor before Aragorn arrives with the undead army. <laughs> Great question, whoever asked that one. Tarek. Extra points for the Lord of the Rings reference. It's very good. <laughs> I'm sorry that you feel that way. Um, I think there are times um, throughout the church's history, especially in the early church, that it often felt like you were losing the battle that the culture was pressing in, that there was persecution and suffering, and Christians and brothers and sisters were being overwhelmed by the culture. And I think it's in those moments that the church got together, that they prayed, that they, uh, bounded, they, they bound themselves together, and they committed all the more to fight. They committed all the more to, to wage this war together. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, this is this, this great vision that's written to the church to encourage them. It, it depicts this battle that's coming at the end of the time. I, I, think, I think it's so important that, uh, that, that the apostle reminds the church that God ultimately wins the war. And I think that's why our Bible ends that way. I, I don't think it's uncommon that you should feel this way. But, uh, but if you do, uh, take, uh, take comfort with the rest of the church. Continue to fight. You're not a lone soldier. And... Um, yeah, if there's some ways that we can help you more tangibly in terms of pastoral care, I'd encourage you to reach out to us and we'd be happy to walk alongside of you. Hope that's helpful. Great. The second question is, what does being on guard look like practically in our daily lives, at work, in the grocery store, and in particular, how do we use and engage with the contrib contributions of secular thinkers and ideas that we encounter in this said world? Hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm very curious to know what strongholds you encounter in the grocery store. <laughs> Organics, that's... Uh... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I, think it, I think it is a daily battle. Uh, I, I think we um, might have touched on this, and your question might have come in afterwards, but, uh, or, or before, rather. Um, I, I think what Paul is saying, that we, we sift everything that we are hearing through the lens of the gospel. There are, uh, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's a fallacy to say that everything in the world, all secular thinking, is, is against the gospel. I don't think that's right. I think, um, I, I think we're all made in the image of God. I think there are vestiges of our thinking that have been empowered and impacted by Jesus. There, there, are, there are good things being done all around the world uh, by people who don't know Jesus. Uh, but at the same time, I think that means that we need to be very discriminating, that as we hear arguments, as we hear philosophies, we look at it and say, what is, this, uh, what is it about this thinking, this philosophy, this reasoning that, that maybe the gospel might affirm? What is good about this thing? And at the same time, what might the gospel actually challenge? Uh, what, what would it be opposed to? Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's easier if we don't see things so black and white that way, but actually weigh each of these things individually uh, with the word of God that we do need. Great. The next question is, it says, uh, we live in a pluralistic society with diverse beliefs and cultures. As, Christians, uh, as a Christian, is diversity of belief and opinion to be celebrated, or is it something to be fought against? Is it, sorry, could you repeat that, Kingsley? Sure thing. Uh, we live in a pluralistic society with diverse beliefs and cultures. As a Christian, is diversity of belief and opinions to be celebrated, or is this something to be fought against? Hmm. 
That's a good question. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head what, around what exactly uh, that you were asking. Thank you for your question. Um, if you mean diversity of, uh, if you mean diversity of gender, uh, race, nationality, those things, I think that's very good. I think the gospel uh, celebrates that, actually. I think all of the Bible points towards all the people of God coming together with different languages, tongues, tribes, all of it, and worshiping God together. So I think, I think the gospel definitely uh, celebrates that. In, in terms of uh, diversity of, of thought, uh, things that are opposed to the gospel, I, I don't think that's something that, that the gospel would celebrate, specifically because that's something that we just saw in our text, condemns people. Uh, the gospel can't celebrate that. Um, and and I, I, think, I think we, we shouldn't celebrate that. Um, we, we can't celebrate and, um, you know, be encouraged by ideas uh, that, are, that are ultimately uh, condemning people and, um, and, and leaving them in futile unbelief. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's right. And at the same time, I think that it's, it's wise to engage with those ideas, uh, to talk through them, uh, to be challenged in our own perspectives and sharpened in our own uh, allegiance to Jesus. So that's helpful. I think that's, that's probably as much as we have time for now. If you have any other questions, I encourage you, feel free to email me at tarek at gracetoronto.ca. Uh, that phone is very small, so it's very difficult to type and see what's actually being written. Uh, so I'd love to engage with you uh, in a more uh, efficient way over email. Thanks. Thank you, Tarek.